0: Well, I want to look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 2 and 3 this morning. Uh, It's um, the first Sunday of a new year. Uh, We've just passed that milestone. When you're on a long hike, you know, any one step doesn't seem much different to any other step as you're going along. But you pass a milestone or you pass something that catches your attention on the way and you stop and you pause to think. And you remember the hike so far, and you're reminded of the intended destination. And so as we start this new year, I know it's the 7th of January, so it's not exactly the first, but it's the first Sunday of the new year. So as we start the new year, let's take a moment to pause and to heed the call of these two verses, 2 and 3, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You see, life is a journey from birth to death. There was a stupid comment made by those who rule over us in the coronavirus so-called pandemic. Uh, You might guess from that what I think of it all. But uh, in that time, they said things like this. Every death is a tragedy. Well, if every death was a tragedy, every birth is a tragedy because life is a journey from birth to death. But the Christian life is a journey from darkness of fleshly ignorance, ignorance of God, ignorance of eternal life. It's a journey out of that into the marvellous light of God and on into the glory of God's kingdom. And so often living in this world, as believers, we lose sight of the fact that that is the goal. It's not just some distant uh, thing that is so far from us that we needn't bother about it yet. It's a, it should be our everyday experience that the kingdom of God is what, what is our destiny? The kingdom of God is, is where we are citizens now in this life. And I would ask you, are you on that journey? Are you on that journey of Christian life? If you are, I know you will confidently answer yes. Yes, you know you are. You know you believe the gospel of grace. Or else you will say, no, that's nothing to do with me. I don't, I don't want anything to do with that sort of thing. You know, I, I, I find increasingly. Um, as I'm getting older and speaking to older people and finding their rejection of any thought of the truth of God, do you know what I think often it results from? Is bitter experiences in their past, in their childhood, or as growing up, in the false religion, the false Christian religion of this world. And that experience has said to them, don't touch that with a barge pole, don't go near that. And so they want to know nothing about it whatsoever. But then there are many who say, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure. Or I don't know where I stand. John Newton wrote a hymn, and one of the verses in it is this. Tis a point I long to know. Oft it causes anxious thought. Do I love the Lord or no? Am I his or am I not? Do you know, as I go on, I'm less and less enamoured with that verse of uh, that hymn of John Newton. I love John Newton's hymns overall. But I think the believer, the true believer, can most definitely know, can most definitely be assured that he is the Lord's and he is following in that way. So this message is primarily addressing you who are on that journey out of the darkness of this world and ignorance of God onto the glorious kingdom of God. Primarily, that's who I'm addressing. And God's word as a whole, the Bible, speaks to his people. It doesn't speak to the world. You say, what's the Bible for? It's to teach the world how to live. No, it's not. It's for God to tell his people how he saved them out of darkness and brought them into his marvellous light. But perhaps, even though this is primarily addressed at believers, perhaps some who will hear it at the start of this new year might be moved to seek and to find. Some young people, perhaps. Some younger ones might be moved to seek and to find. Some who thought that this would have no relevance to them whatsoever might be brought to think about their mortality and the frailty of life and how fleeting it can be and what they can do. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You know, they might come to question and find and find themselves on that road to the celestial city. Now, in the Scripture, the exodus of the children of Israel from the bondage, the slavery of Egypt, through 40 years of wilderness wanderings into the promised land of Canaan, that pictures the Christian's life journey in many ways. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of Moses, the Pentateuch, pent meaning five, Deuteronomy is the fifth one of the five books of Moses, and its title means second law. In other words, it's a reminder of the law previously given. It's a reminder and an exposition of the law previously given. And one reminder in particular is a reminder to remember. And it's in our verses, chapter 8 and verses 2 and 3. Let me just read them again. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee, and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know how that a man doth not live by bread alone alone by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord, doth man live. So remember all the way. That's what I've called this message. Remember all the way. There it is at the start of verse 2. Thou shalt remember all the way. And I want us to note, first of all, that this is a way. Your life as a believer, out of darkness into the marvellous light of God and on into the glorious kingdom of God, is a way ordained of God remember all the way which the lord thy god led thee these 40 years that's the christian life it's a path ordained of god to bring each one of his people safe to heaven it's ordained of god you didn't choose it you're not working it out yes work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's god that works in you both to will and to do of his own good pleasure but it's God who brings his people safe to heaven. This way, ordained of God, has a beginning. It's a clear beginning. It has a revelation of the divine truth. It has a release from bondage. It has a long, wandering, often zigzag journey with ups and downs and highs and lows and joy and sadness and grief, and pain, all of these things on this way to eternal glory. The beginning for the children of Israel was when they were brought out of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery under the Egyptians, picturing the world, and the sin, and the, and, and the devil holding the people of God in bondage, and yet God brought them out by the hand of Moses and Aaron, brought them out from under that bondage, and revealing the truth of God, them. And the truth was revealed most prominently in the Passover when they came out, uh, when, when the Egyptians didn't just say, you're not going to go. The Egyptians said, please go, get out now, because the firstborn of all the land of Egypt were killed, all except those where the blood of the sacrificial lamb was painted on the doorposts." So the angel of death, the slaying angel came, and as God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. That was a revelation of gospel truth It was an exodus from bondage, as is the exodus into the marvellous light of Christ, an exodus from the bondage of sin, the bondage of the will, into the marvellous light of God. And yet it is in this life, a long and wandering zigzag journey. Whoever you are, however different from others, it's all ordained by God. Uh, I might... uh, Have you seen where, where... uh, somebody sees a countryman leaning on uh, a gate in the countryside and some lost travellers come up and they say to him, uh, excuse me, sir, how, how, could you tell me how I could get to uh, Compton Dundon or some other quaint English name? And he says, well, I wouldn't start from here. You know? <laughs> how do you get to the celestial city? Well, you might say, looking back on your journey, you wouldn't start from here. My testimony is, when I look back, that the journey of the Christian life, I would say, well, if I could do it all myself again, I wouldn't start from here. But that was what God ordained. I I came into a knowledge of uh, the things of God, I wouldn't say the truth of God, but the things of God, um, in a situation of a false gospel. I um, I was very much attracted to a pretty girl sitting on a fence in a play. And uh, there she is now, (laughs) these days, 50-odd years later. And we went through various churches with varying degrees of truth. But the time came when God put us on the road of the true gospel. The truth was preached. And we've been learning ever since, layer on layer, precept upon precept, as it says in the book of Isaiah. Ever since there, God has been taking us on A wilderness journey, for this world is a wilderness, has been taking us on a wilderness journey from that initial start right the way through, and he will complete it. He will take us to glory. This is the wilderness wandering towards the kingdom of God, which was ordained of God for me, and yours might be different. Yours could well be different. And it's good to remember. It's not always the way I would have chosen. But he has ordained it for my eternal good. Why? Because we know he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. For every one of his elect whom he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world, he has an ordained way to bring them to eternal glory for their eternal good. What is his purpose? To bring us to heaven. That's his purpose. His purpose is to bring each one of his people to heaven. Eternal life is that true abundant life of God. Not here and now, but that which goes on into eternity and never ends. Compared with this life, as Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, he calls this life, however bad is the suffering you might be going through. Some are our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And he goes on in the next verse, things which are seen are temporal. Things which we can see and touch and seem so solid and permanent are only temporary in the reckoning of God. But the things which we don't see, the things of heaven, the things of the Spirit, those are the things that are eternal. Those are the things that moth and rust cannot corrupt. The world can see nothing but here and now. And yet we, as the people of God, are called by Paul in Colossians 3 verse 2 to set our affection on things above. Not on things in the world. Oh, how much people, even professing believers, their affection is clearly, totally centred on the things of this world. Yes, it's good and right to enjoy things of this world, this cre- God's creation is beautiful all around us. It's not, it's not wrong to look at a glorious scene and, and see the wonderful work of God in it all, but set your affection on things above where Christ is, because whatever you value in this life, it will pale into insignificance compared with the glory that awaits the people of God, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Are you able to remember all the way in which the Lord thy God has led thee. Can you remember there being a beginning when he called you out of darkness into his marvellous light? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, do you know this verse? It's worth committing it to memory. He says to them, these Philippian believers, he says, being, this is Paul, he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know, it isn't you that made you a Christian. You didn't decide to be a Christian, even though he makes his people willing in the day of his power. No, it was God that began a good work of salvation in you. And if God has begun it, I'm very good at starting jobs and not very good at finishing them, but that's not like God. God. having started it, will finish it. He who has begun the good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, until judgment day and on into eternity. It may have started in what you might think of as spiritual side street. I think mine was in in an Arminian gospel. But nevertheless, looking back, tracing back, it was a true beginning. It was a true beginning. It was a way that God brought me from that situation. It started, in my case, with an awareness of God, when my friends at school didn't seem to have any awareness of God whatsoever. It started with me thinking that there must be something more than this present physical life and this world, that it can't just end, because otherwise, what's it all for? And all of those around me, who were my friends who I used to try to talk to, had no idea what I was talking about and thought I'd lost my mind. I became aware of my immortality, that this body, I was not going to live forever, that it was a veil of tears that lay ahead, possibly. Could be, when you looked at what was happening to others, and it was a way that would end with accountability to God. That the day would come in judgment when I I would have to give an answer to him who asked me to account for all of those things that I had thought and done, and an awareness of sin. I was guided by providence. Not all God's people guided by providence, by circumstances, the circumstances of life, different in each and every case. He sometimes uses the path of another on the road to the celestial city, to heaven, that's what Bunyan calls it in Pilgrim's Progress, he sometimes uses the path that another is on to cross yours and in the process to cause you to go in the direction he would have you go. That was certainly true of me. Coming across preachers who didn't preach religion, who didn't preach law, who didn't preach uh, tradition preached the biblical gospel of free, sovereign grace. That preached the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved his people from their sins. That he hasn't given them a start and it's up to them to finish it. That the Lord Jesus Christ has saved his people to the uttermost. That he has saved them from the wrath to come. The gospel, the good news, the good news to sinners of gospel grace, and eventually to put us on that clear highway to God's kingdom, with Christ alone as, as He said, "I am your way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but, but by me." John fourteen six. So that you worship God in the Spirit, as Philippians three verse three says, you. Stop worshipping according to religion, but you worship God in the spirit. And you rejoice, not in what you have done, or the hymns you can sing, or the religious acts you do, but you rejoice in Christ Jesus, that he is my Lord and his blood has cleansed my sin debt from me, that I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, that I have no confidence in my flesh for anything to do with this life or eternity, But I acknowledge God is sovereign in all things. If God started you on the journey, surely, as that verse in Philippians 1 verse 6 says, surely he will complete it. But why such a convoluted way? Why does he not just save a person and take them straight to heaven out of this evil world? Well, these verses tell us. In verse 2, You shall remember all the way the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thy heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. It's a way to teach dependence upon God, to humble you, to prove your heart, to try whether you will obey not the strict letter of his laws, but gospel precepts, the gospel of his truth and grace. He sends trials in this life, tests, to break dependence on self and on this world. We so naturally gravitate back to self-satisfaction, to looking for the answer to all our problems in ourselves and the world around us. But he sends us trials and tests, Um, chastisement. He, 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 He chastises his children to break dependence on self and the world. And so he calls them to remember. He calls you and me, believer, to remember, to look back, to look back on the trials, uh, on, the, on the times of trial and the tests of faith that you've been through, that you may yet have to go through. The removal of worldly comforts, the removal of health, such, such a shock to the system, but something to which we're all subject. The removal of financial security in some cases, circumstances that forced us out of worldly conformity. This is what God did. This journey is to break our dependence upon this world and set our hearts firmly on the kingdom of God and of his glory and of that blissful existence which he has in store in those mansions that he's created in heaven for his people. We even experience hatred from this world now. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15:18, if the world hates you, and that word if probably would be better when you find the world hating you, when you find yourself out of kilter with this world, ye know that it hated me, him, Jesus, before it hated you. And all of it is to break the hold of sin and rebellion against God to wean us off this world and all that he offers, to sow the seed of eternity in our hearts. You know what it says in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, he's, uh, he's, uh, or is it 11, verse 3, that, that he's put the world in our hearts, but that word can be translated as well as a sense of eternity also. To sow the seed of eternity in hearts. God has led his people in their wilderness wanderings to humble them to prove their heart, is it the genuine faith of God's elect that they have? Or just an interest in the intellectual aspects of the word of God? Because, be no doubt, of all literature in this world, of all literature, there is nothing on the level of the book, of the Bible, the scriptures. And some people just have a, an interest, an obsession... From an intellectual point of view, that's not the faith of God's elect. The faith of God's elect, which God tries in this world with his trials, the faith of God's elect is that faith which is truly in Christ and him alone. And then to try obedience, to try whether you'd keep the commandments. The, the main one, what shall we do that we do the work of God, they asked Jesus in John chapter 6. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent, to try your obedience to the gospel, your submission to the gospel, your devotion to God's gospel, to his truth and conformance, to the precepts that he teaches in the epistles and throughout the scriptures. You know, it, we don't live as we want. We live seeking to live in accordance with the precepts of the gospel. The precepts of the gospel. It's the gospel that establishes the righteousness of God. And we don't don't legally obey because in the flesh by the works of the law, by the works of the flesh, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. But as redeemed people, redeemed from the curse of the law, it is for the people of God in obedience to God to seek to live according to the precepts of God as they're taught in the epistles. Then it was a way to cause hunger, verse 3. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manner which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that a man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. He who fed 5,000... And that was at the start of John chapter 6. He who fed 5,000 and others, there was the 4,000 and and others that were fed, he caused his people to hunger. Just let that sink in for a moment. He who on that day in his ministry, in John chapter 6, the first few verses, the 5,000 that were there following him because no man spake like this man, And where are we going to give them something to eat? And we're a long way from any shops where they can buy. What can we do? What have we got? Five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus gave thanks and broke them and divided them and miraculously created enough to fill to fill 5,000 people so that they were no longer hungry. And yet, that same God, he who fed 5,000, caused his people to hunger, it says in this verse 3, There was no food in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 16, we hear what they say. They've no sooner come across the Red Sea into the wilderness and they're journeying. And in verse 1, they took their journey from Elim. And all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured, complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots we had loads to eat, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You see, they complained. They moaned and complained. But why did God bring them there? to teach dependence on God. To teach dependence on God. He taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He alone gives life to every living thing. He alone does that. Without him, everything dies. It does. There's no food without God. God gives life to all flesh that becomes meat and all vegetation that becomes other aspects of our diet. He alone gives life to everything. Give us this day our daily bread. But as in physical food, so in spiritual food. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst. He's not talking about food and drink. He's talking about righteousness Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. How shall they be filled? God will fill them, by his bounty, by his grace, by his mercy. If all was easy, would we ever cry to God for mercy, for provision? If all was easy in whatever way it was, if the money kept rolling in, the health kept going on, everything kept happening just exactly as we would want, would we ever cry to God for mercy and for provision? And so it is that trials teach God's people. He causes them to hunger for spiritual nourishment. There's very little in our society. I know there is in parts of the world, but there's very little genuine hunger in our society. And so there's very little, I'm not saying there's none, but there's very little. There's very little calling on the name of the Lord for help, as in times gone by, in days gone by. You can read the testimonies of saints 250 years ago. Poor, poor people. John Warburton, a poor weaver, barely from week to week, could afford to feed his family, dependent on the gifts of others. But there's very little of that in these days. And so there's very little calling on the name of the Lord as in past times. And as in physical food, so in spiritual. People are so self-satisfied. People in our society are so easily fed with junk food, don't you find? So easily fed with junk food. We find that the people we come across, you know, and we try to be friendly and we seek as much as in us is to live at peace with all men, but we find what is it that motivates them? It's the most, in, in in terms of spiritual things, it's the most junk food. It's, it's worthless. It's no nutrition in it, whether it's physical or spiritual. But if you're a true child of God, he suffers you to hunger spiritually so that you cry out for him. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He will supply the need. The Christian life is a life of constantly hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God on this wilderness journey. And it's a life with that hunger that is only ever and constantly met by the filling which comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Israelites complained and God gave them manna. Do you know what the word manna means? It literally means, what is it? We don't know what it is. They said, manna, what is this? What is it? He gave them manna from heaven. uh, Six days of the week, and then on the last day, on the sixth day, uh, it would have been the Friday morning, he gave them double quantities from heaven because they didn't go out to collect any on the Sabbath day, the seventh day. He gave them manna from heaven. And think about this. He, who is the source of all providence and all good, fed one million people, more than one million people, every day with this manna from heaven, this wafer, this nourishing wafer, whatever it was, he fed them for 40 years. Even the unbelieving Jews acknowledge that. In John chapter 6 and verse 31, as we read earlier, they said to Jesus, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Even they believed that that was the case, that he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Those Israelites symbolized the true people of God. They were redeemed out of worldly bondage in Egypt. They were brought to the promised land of Canaan by long wilderness wanderings. They were made to hunger on that way. Why? Verse 3, to teach the need for bread from heaven. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To teach the need for bread from heaven. Do you know that you have a need for bread from heaven? that you cannot live without it. You cannot survive without it. You must have spiritual light from God. You must have soul food. You must have God's word to satisfy your hungry soul so that, as it says in Psalm 107, verse 4, they wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. Is that not the experience of the child of God, on and on? He makes his people cry out to him. My soul, Psalm 42, verse 2, my soul thirsteth for God. Thirst, hunger, same idea. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, my God, my soul thirsts for thee. It longs as in a dry and thirsty land. He leads his people, God leads his people in a way which starves their souls and makes them aware of hunger for God's righteousness and for his fellowship. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So that they cry to him for heavenly bread. So that they cry for that bread which is his word. It says this in Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were the rejoicing of my soul. By this he teaches his people to live, not by worldly bread, Not by that, although we need, give us this day our daily bread. We pray for that, the providence of God, that he would give us what we need. But we don't live only by that. Yes, we keep living because we get nourishment and and we breathe air and, and, and we drink liquid. And that keeps our bodies functioning. But we don't live by that alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But I just want to say, in the closing few minutes, how is this made tangible? And by tangible, I mean something you can get hold of, something you can grip. Otherwise, we're just grasping at vapour. We're just waving our arms in the air. Well, the answer is this. This manner from heaven, this way in which they were taught to hunger and God fed them, is a way to teach that that manner truly is Christ. Is Christ. Yes, we need every word, that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord in order to truly live. But you might say, give me something tangible to grasp hold of. Well, turn back with me in the closing few minutes to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. As I said in in the first few verses, well, verses 5 to 14, is the account of the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 people... were filled not just they didn't just get a taste of bread they were filled they they were full and there were 12 baskets of fragments left over that's how that's how bountiful was the provision of that miracle and so they thought this was good and they kept on seeking and in uh, verses 24 to 27 when the people saw that Jesus wasn't there Uh, neither his disciples. They also took shipping and came to Capernaum. This is across the Lake of Galilee. And when they'd found him, ah, we found him. We're we're going to get another feed. And Jesus says to them, "You, you didn't, you're not looking for me because of the truth, because of the miracle of God You're looking because you ate the bread and were filled. You did eat of the loaves and were filled, verse 26. That's why you're looking for another free meal, is what Jesus says to them. You're seeking another miracle. And then in verses 30 to 35, again they say, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe you? They've got very short memories, haven't they? The day before, did they not see the most amazing miracle When five loaves and two fishes fed 5,000 plus the rest, have they not seen enough of a miracle? But they want to see another one. They want to be fed again. Uh, Come and do what God did to our fathers in the wilderness that we've read about in Deuteronomy 8. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in in the desert. He gave them bread to eat from heaven. But Jesus, who is the word of God, that's his name in Revelation 19 on his thigh, There he is in his majesty, Jesus, God manifest. That's why I put that piece in by Don Bell in the bulletin. God, our saviour, he's God, our saviour. Our saviour is not just a man, our saviour is God. He who is the word of God, the manifestation of God. Show us the Father and this will suffice. Philip, have I been with you so long and you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He declared that he is the bread of life, that true bread which comes down from heaven to satisfy the souls of his people, that alone which satisfies soul hunger and thirst for the righteousness without which, as Hebrews 12 tells us, no man shall see God. It's that righteousness which is only accomplished by blood redemption, the precious blood of a lamb without blemish and without spot of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you turn in John 6 to verse 48, he declares it plainly. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from him. He is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. He means for his people in the world. He declared he is the bread of life. We must imbibe him. Verse 56, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, not as cannibals, not literally, dwelleth in me and I in him. It's spiritually. Verse 63, the words that I speak, they are spirit and life. He that spiritually eats my flesh and drinks my blood. He that spiritually is united with me in his redeeming grace. He is the one who is the child of God, who is his person, his his child. And Christ is that true manna which is from heaven. As the wilderness manna fed over a million people for 40 years, verse 58, those who imbibe Christ and all that he is spiritually shall live forever. So remember, in closing, all the way... From the beginning of a good work in you. Can you trace it back? Child of God, can you trace back to a good work that God began in you? And through the ups and downs of this wilderness wandering, the ups and downs of life, the darkness and the light, the times of ease and the times of great trials, the times of joy and the times of abject sorrow, through all that way, has he humbled you? and taught you to depend on him and not yourself? Has he tested your faith? Has he tried your obedience to gospel grace? Do you believe it? Are you devoted to him? Has he made you hunger for heavenly bread? Has he shown you that bread in Christ and him alone, and brought you to daily feed upon him? If he has, as Philippians 1.6 says, he will surely complete that work and bring you safe to his eternal kingdom. Amen.